shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, it's that time of the week, ladies and gentlemen, to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. And with me always is the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I am capital, my good man. How are you? It doesn't sound very capital. It was awesome uh, running into you in Fort Worth. Uh, never did a show with you, and... Uh, it was kind of interesting, and uh, find ourselves our find our paths in the same city uh, every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, it's it's life of the EMS jet setters, man. It's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be home. I'll be gone most of next week, and home for a, a day, and then on the road again. So yeah, this I mean, is one a busy of the things, time of the year. One of the things about uh, being your own, uh, having your own business, being a consultant, is I left home on the 18th of October, and I won't get back to my home until the 23rd of November. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I don't travel that extensively, but I know the feeling. It, it sucks to be self-employed. Your boss is a jerk. Yeah, I don't know about your <laughs> boss. But, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things that have been going on. You know, we've been talking about all the shootings that have been happening. Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard about the, you know, the Columbines, of course, and the Auroras and the Sandy Hooks. And, you know, and, and now we've got to really start to think about how do we prepare our medics, you know, to get into this warm zone. And, and we've got a guest who's sitting at the guest table. I'm going to go ahead and throw that to you and get the introductions and uh, let's get this segment rolling. Yeah, we've got a, uh, a special guest this week. This is a gentleman who uh, has known me since I was a brand new baby EMT. He was a uh, longtime uh, state employee working with our uh, Bureau of Health Standards and uh, and a uh, tactical EMS guru, uh, a good friend of mine, Steve Irwin. Steve, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Kelly, Chris. Uh, why don't you uh, why don't you tell the guys about yourself and give us a brief give our uh, listeners a brief rundown of your resume, brother? Uh, first of all, I, I'm a graduate of LSU. Uh, I've started in EMS about 42, 43 years ago. I'm currently an advanced EMT. I'm an EMS educator. Uh, I've been a tactical medic. I'm also a FEMA active shooter instructor member of the Alabama Tactical Officers Association, and uh, consultant, just like the rest of you. Okay. Well, Steve, one of the things Chris and I have, have focused on recently, and I mean, it seems like it's always in the news, is uh, are these active shooter incidents, and, and not only those, but the uh, increased incidents of uh, violence against EMS personnel. And one of the things that we were we, we'd love to talk with you about is, is the newer approaches to dealing with active shooters uh you know the doctrine has seems to me the doctrine has shifted in the last few years and we're, we're approaching active shooter incidents and in, in new ways and and utilizing ems and in, in a different capacity than i'm used to as as a tactical medic why don't you tell us more about that what this rescue task is all about sure what it started, it started in about 2006 with a gentleman who had been in the service and he came back and he went to the Alexandria, Virginia Fire Department and he started the Rescue Task Force concept. And this is a, a concept where EMTs work in the warm zone under law enforcement protection and with the appropriate personal protective equipment and their job is to quickly apply life-saving treatments and extract these uh, 
patients who otherwise would die from the from the warm zone so they can be uh, taken to the most appropriate facilities. Yeah, when we think about I mean, there's just so much, as Kelly mentioned, Steve, there's just so much going on. So when we think about, you know, this process of learning the warm zone, and I, and for a little background for you, uh, one of my, uh, I guess, accomplishments is uh, in my last position, our it, it was our medics that were right in the middle of all that Ferguson mess, all that Ferguson crisis. And Bless you. Yeah, and, and but one of the challenges were is getting them to think differently from where we've always said, you know, make sure you're safe, to now saying it's okay with this training to enter into this warm zone. In, in your experience, and and with 42 years, you, you've got some vast experience. In your experience, how do we take that mentality and now shift it to where we need them to be? Well, first of all, Chris, we have to shift the mentality not only at the individual level but at the management level for both law enforcement and EMS because this this concept is have, having trouble catching on some places and and that's that's a major educational problem because I think some of the hardest heads in the world are in management and <laughs> some of them aren't quite ready to make that make that change yet and so we're going to have to educate them as to why that change is necessary and why we need to make it. And we also need to show them that our, our, our rank and file are prepared for it. I think it starts uh, when we get to the EMS portion of our, our various provider classes of instilling in them more about situational awareness and mindset about there's no longer any such thing as a safe scene. Yeah, I mean, and that's the one of the things that, you know, Kelly and I have debated on this show quite a bit in the sense that, you know, we're good at saying, is the scene safe? We're not very good at maintaining a, a safe scene. But I got to tell you, as an EMS chief, I'm with you 100%. We now have to be able to change our focus because instead of waiting, you know, an ungodly amount of time for help to get there, if we can have those paramedics in that warm zone, we can deliver the best quality of care. So, Kelly, what do you got? I think that rendering care in the warm zone is an idea that has a lot of merit, and, and the rescue task force model makes a lot of sense. You know, whereas previously we had, you know, the the doctrine was uh, surround and contain, and then when you get a tactical uh, team on on site, go in and and engage clear the you know area and engage the shooter as you find him, and, and the tactical EMTs were were part of that team. Uh, as rear entry or, or support or, or whatever, but you know the the active shooter incidents we've had have, have shown that that uh, if you wait, more people are going to die. And not only if you wait to neutralize the shooter, more people will die. If you wait to render medical care, more people are going to die. There have been instances in in a number of these recent uh, mass shootings where you know victims have bled out from survivable wounds before EMS could get there. And I think it only makes sense that, you know, given the proper training, that's the big caveat, given the proper training on how to operate in the warm zone, that, you know, EMS needs to be actively uh, involved in these rescue task forces. Uh, I think uh, every EMT uh, needs to have a little bit of tactical training and, and have the tools and knowledge to, to uh, 
uh, work in that warm zone, and which brings me to my next uh, my next question for you, Steve. What do you think EMTs need to know and be aware of uh, when working in that in that warm zone? What kind of a uh, special knowledge and skills do you think they need to be uh, they need to employ? First of all, they, they as I said, when you're in their their basic provider training in the EMS operations, they need to know situational awareness, mindset. Uh, what the warm zone is, etc. Then, and then he also need to know the differences in the care we provide in the warm zone as opposed okay. to the cold zone. We know let me, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you, Steve. One, one thing we've been doing is we've been we've been using the words warm zone, but we've never actually defined it. I think for our listeners, why don't you before you move on? Why don't you tell uh, tell our listeners what the warm zone actually is? Okay, generally. When we started this with hazardous materials, where you had the hot zone, which was contaminated, the warm zone, which was kind of the buffer zone between the hot zone that was contaminated, and the cold zone, which had no contamination. In, in the active shooter context, what it is, it's an area that's been cleared once by police, but not totally secured. We've gone through there. We haven't found anything. We've moved on to the, the our, our shooter team has moved on to the next level, followed by a second team, which consists of both medical rescue and law enforcement for their security, because we haven't totally guaranteed that it's secure. I see. So uh, operating in that warm zone, aside from the, the situational awareness that you mentioned, uh, whatever what other tools do uh, EMTs need to be taught and, and bring into the warm zone? Well, first of all, the differences in treatment modality. If you look at the new Tactical Emergency Casualty Care course, this is called a, a zone of indirect threat. You may not be getting shot at, but the potential for things to restart is, is there. So there are some different treatment modalities we have to use. We need to know how to actually operate. That means tactical movement, tactical formations. Most importantly, we need integrating our operation with the law enforcement agency's operation. And that's probably best taught on an individual agency basis. When you go to work, wherever you work, you, part of your orientation program should be, what do we do with an active shooter? How do we integrate with the local agency? Yeah, I would imagine that, that you know, differences, there, there will probably be some slight differences in and tactics and doctrine uh, from one law enforcement agency to another, and, and it would probably, you know, it makes sense to to liaise with your your local law enforcement agency to make sure you're all on the same page. Exactly, Kelly. When I when I first started doing tactical EMS, the difference was where your where your law enforcement people did they have a Fort Benning background or a Quantico background, meaning Army versus <laughs> Marine Corps. Today, it's uh, there are several different systems being taught to respond to active shooter. Most common one is probably ALERT, which is the FBI system, which is uh, taught through Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Another common one is uh, a, a system called LASER, which I'm an instructor for. LASER is taught through FEMA and LSU's NCBRT. Uh, it appears that laser, at least in Louisiana, is more common because it's a little less manpower intensive. In Texas, uh, alerts gospel, and it, it's going to depend on where you are and who you're working with. I see. 
So, Steve, let me ask you this, because as an EMS chief, you know, I've got to think about liability. And, and as you've defined for us what the warm zone is, you said it's an area that's been cleared at least once. So now we're going to put our medics into that area. I guess we should be worried about uh, or, or outfitting them with bulletproof vests. Do they need to be armed as well? What happens if the shooter comes back around? I mean, our guys are just going to be sitting there and taking care of the people who they're taking care of. I mean, what's the protocol say? How do we deal with that? Well, when they enter that warm zone, they have law enforcement personnel providing them security. It is a one of the reasons it's called a, a rescue task force. That's the, the NIMS term for multiple resources in one team. So you're going to have two or three law enforcement personnel escorting two or three medical personnel. Now, it's their job to provide the force protection and I security if they if the uh, the situation erupts again. Yes, your medical personnel should have the appropriate personal protective equipment. Now, there's a little bit of question as to what that is. My personal belief is it includes uh, uh, body armor, including vests. Now, I'm aware of at least one agency that implemented this program without utilizing body armor, and I question their wisdom, but I, you know, I'll probably get a chance to go and do an after action if somebody ever gets hurt. Uh, the one thing that is interesting in talking with Texas State University is since the implementation of the rescue task force, no EMS personnel have been killed or injured doing this. But but how many uh, how many um, uh, how how many times has the rescue task force been utilized? I would imagine it's fairly small sample size, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, well, how many times are these guys deployed on on active shooter incidents? Well, Texas State University could not tell me that. They did tell me that, again, they, they had no knowledge of any EMS personnel being injured or killed as part of a rescue task force. Now, mm -hmm. I'd like to ha I'm like you, I'd like to have a little bit of data. And if you'll remember, Kelly, about eight years ago, we had a barricaded uh, suspect up in Bastrop, Louisiana, and we had a couple And of shot a couple up. of our colleagues, yeah. Yeah, now, there was a catch. Number one, there was, at that point, we had, that was not a, an active shooter the way we define active shooter today. And in my opinion, somebody up there panicked because they tried to put something together ad hoc without yeah. the appropriate training or equipment. I, um, I think that today we realize that if this is what we're going to do, we have to have the appropriate training. And yeah, so, and you mentioned this a couple times, Steve, about the appropriate training. And at, towards the end of the show, I want you to give your contact information because you do travel around the United States and you, and you do teach this. But explain to the listeners, and I would really like to know, what does appropriate training mean? I mean, what, is the, what does the course entail? How long is it? What are some of the things you're going to cover in it? Well, there is no, quote, rescue task force course that has come out of any entity to my knowledge. Everybody has kind of done their own thing to this point. I know that uh, FEMA is working on something, but it's not hasn't been released. Based on what I've seen in my recommendations, it would be after an orientation to the to the equipment and the concepts and everything else. I'd have put my people through one of the law enforcement active shooter programs like Laser or Alert, 
depending on which one your law enforcement people are using. And what that teaches them is tactical movement, tactical formations, and, and most importantly, integration. And that's the key, is appropriately integrating with law enforcement. The other thing I would put these people through is, of course, like either TCCC or tech. And at this point, having taken both courses, my recommendation is tech because it applies more to the civilian realm. I'm I'm actually not familiar with tech. It's uh I'm assuming it's it's you know adheres to your 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 T triple C principles. Right. Uh, tech, is a, some... tech is a civilianized version of the T triple C course. They just did the rollout in Las Vegas last or well mm -hmm. September now. I'll be honest with you that I found very little difference between the two. There is a little bit of discussion of pediatrics in tech where there is not in TCCC. A uh -huh. lot of it has to be to do with terminology. Instead of care under fire, it's direct threat care, indirect threat care, and then transport care as opposed to okay. the, the TCCC uh, terminology of, of uh, care under fire and then followed by, again, medevac care. But that was the biggest thing I saw. You you mentioned the the issuing appropriate uh, equipment and uh, in addition to the training, um, what do you think of, of EMS agencies issuing ballistic vests to employees? Should it be issued mandatory wear for all EMS crews, especially given the the uh, the threats we're encountering these days? I mean, there was just a, there was just a, a, an ambulance shot at uh, and hit um, just. Uh, this last couple of days, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, two Guilford County ambulance uh, uh, crew was uh, shot at, and a couple, and the round went through the window of the ambulance. You think uh, you think it's time that that agencies issue um, ballistic vests to their employees, or should it be an optional thing? I'm at, I'm to the point right now, except in the major urban 911 systems, it probably ought to be for everyday operations should probably be optional. I would tell you that if I was working every day on an ambulance, I would I would wear mine. Um, I surveyed about five agencies in preparation for this uh, conference. I found that, and I, I'm talking about major urban agencies for the most part, nobody is mandating them yet in, in routine operations. However, I found a couple employers, Kelly, including yours, mm -hmm. that are making them available. Uh, they have acquisition at reduced cost. They have uh, payroll deduction, things like that. Now, one particular agency, the major urban area, does have body armor available for active shootings and for their tagmatics, of course. Hmm. I'm I'm gonna have to look through the company store on that. I, I don't I'm not sure they make a. a it is available. Uh, it is available, and they'll put it on payroll deduction. Was what the manager told me. Maybe maybe they'll hopefully they they issue a two A vest in in fat boy size. Uh, we'll, well see. <laughs> let me tell you a little secret, Kelly. Buying body armor, and I'm actually on my third set. Is like buying a, a, a good suit. You have to go to a, a seamstress and get fitted. And gets fitted appropriately. My first one was the conventional under the shirt armor. My second one mm -hmm. uh, is actually a design for medics, and it's an over the shirt armor, which has um, actually has pockets to put medical supplies in. Uh, I got you. 
I got you. And the third one is the new uh, model that, that came, the special shooter, uh, active shooter setup, complete with the active shooter kit built into the vest. Oh, I'm going to have to investigate that. And what's unique about that is, unlike the other two vests I have, it's more of a plate carrier, and it's not something that necessarily has to be custom fitted to the individual. Some of the newer armor has is a little bit adjustable, but it its the protection from it is a little bit different than that of those people, the vests that officers wear every day. I, I see. Yeah, one of the things that I was always one of the things I was always concerned with, Steve, and I guess in the situations of active shooter, it's a little bit different. I know that after the Ferguson event, a lot of the medics, because we supplied body armor to them uh, for the November event, and, and they had it during the August event as well, but some of them were very uh, uh, worried, and they continued to wear them after the event, and of course we supported that, but one of the challenges that I have with the over-the-shirt uh, version is that it makes I think it makes them a target. I think if the, somebody sees that shoot me uh, shoot me in the head vest. Well, not only that, but you know I can, let me go ahead and take a shot at this guy, even though he's wearing a vest. Um, even if it, it's not even shooting the head, but let's just put one right in center mass and see what happens. And I think it makes them kind of walking targets if we're wearing that stuff. I'm all for wearing it if it makes you feel comfortable. I don't know that I would wear one, but if you wanted to wear one, I support you 100. percent But I don't know that I want you wearing it outside because I'd hate this for someone just to say. I'm going to shoot this guy and see what happens. Chris, the one thing I noticed universally is that nobody encourages people except in tactical or active shooter environments. Nobody encourages people to wear over-the-vest armor as a matter of routine on shift. Everybody I talked to said, we don't mind them wearing it, but we want them to wear it under the shirt. I think part of it I is that, that philosophy you said, you don't want them to become targets, coupled with a certain amount about appearance because those, I mean, they're actually not made to be born that way and, and they don't look the best in the world. Now, if I was going to an active shooter event, I'd take, I'd have my, my vest down under the shirt and then, then put the heavy duty vest down over the shirt. One of the obstacles that I see, Steve, is, is, you know, if we're going to integrate uh, warm zone operations into initial EMS education and, and teach, you know, teach every EMT just how to respond to an active shooter incident, that sort of thing. Well, if, if we're going to send them into warm zones, they have to be uh, appropriately, um, they have to be equipped with, with the ballistic vest. That's going to necessitate, because you don't know who's going to, what unit's going to respond. That's uh, eventually going to necessitate that all EMS, uh, all employees at an agency have a vest. Not necessarily. I looked at uh, the way New Orleans does that. They put uh, three sets, they have three sets of heavy-duty armor, uh, rifle-grade plate carriers, and they actually put them on the rescue truck. So the rescue truck responds to all the active shooters, and then they, those are the, the, of the, are the armor that is not, uh, that is adjustable and can go from person to person, as opposed to what you and I are more familiar with that goes under the shirt and you, you wear it every day. So, Steve, let me ask you my final question before I give it to Kelly to close. What What do you think? I mean, what advice do you have for the people who are out there listening that if they're going to do this training, what, what's the best thing that you can give them? I mean, what's the, what's the parting shot you give them here? First of all, take it seriously. 
You can't say that it's not going to happen here. Every community, no matter how large or how small, has a school, and it has a, a church, and these are the two biggest venues of active shooter incidents. Just remember, it can happen any time and any place, and it, like Sergeant Eskerhouse said on uh, Hill Street, y'all be careful out there. That's great advice. Kelly, I think we had a really great show. Why don't you go ahead and uh, get us up on out of here? Well, Steve, it was great uh, hearing from you again, man, and, and thanks for educating our listeners on on uh, rescue task forces and, and tactical EMS in general. Anyway, thanks for thanks for coming on the show, and for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, uh, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, and we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>